Welcome to the Signal Fire podcast, where we cut through the noise to decipher the biggest trends in tech. Join us to explore the future with investors from our $1 billion early stage venture fund and inspiring founders from our portfolio. I'm your host, Signal Fire's Josh Constein, the former editor of TechCrunch. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the biggest trends in health tech, why health insurance is broken, the future of vaccines being delivered via Uber, and this incredible $500 million raise by Roe, uh, the telehealth care primary care service uh, that is part of the Signal Fire portfolio. And we're super excited to be joined today by Z, uh, one of the, the CEO, Saman, one of the co-founders, and some of the investment team members from Signal Fire. And we're going to be getting started in just a second. But I'm really excited about this because it was actually about five years ago that I wrote the first ever story about Roe when I was still at TechCrunch, and Z gave me the most amazing interview. He told us about his vulnerability, about his own heart condition that led to erectile dysfunction, and how that inspired him to build a startup that could destigmatize healthcare and give people the kind of care right from home that they really needed. And so, Z, thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited to hear about this. So what's been up? Uh, tell us about a little bit about this big news that you guys have. Josh, how's it going? Thanks so much for having us. We're super excited to announce our most recent fundraise, which is a $500 million round at a $5 billion valuation. And really excited to talk about the transformation of Roe over the last five years, as you mentioned. I started Roe because each person in my family has had some life-threatening illness. My dad's had four heart attacks and a stroke. My mom has neurological disease. My sister, who is the biggest warrior of all of us, is a two-time cancer survivor. She has an autoimmune disease and a brain tumor, and I have a congenital heart condition. And uh, my dad saved every one of our lives. And growing up, whenever we had a healthcare concern, we'd go to him, and he'd handle it from beginning to end. And if he couldn't, he'd find a friend that could guide us through. And ultimately, everyone deserves that, right? Everyone deserves access to, to high-quality, affordable healthcare. And I think that's my personal guiding light. A therapist mentioned to this to me once, which is in many ways, I think I'm, I really am trying to make my dad immortal and keep him around for as long as possible by recreating him in many ways with software. But access to high quality, affordable health care is a, a given right or a right that we think everyone should have access to. And that's really our guiding light at Roe is to really give everyone access to that. And so I think when we first started, people really felt that that was a pie in the sky mission, right? And I think that one of the reasons we had such a great conversation when we first started talking was you were always one of those reporters who dreamt with founders and who knew that where they started was not where they ultimately wanted to end up. And so we have so much more of our story to tell and we, we have so much more to build for patients. But I think people are starting to see Roe take that transition from where we started to really bringing more of a patient-centric healthcare system in, into reality. Yeah, I think if you have a doctor in your family, you get a better quality of care than most everybody. And it's easy to forget how different it can be when you just don't have somebody to ask that last minute question to when you're you're scared or you don't know if this is something serious or not. And having someone that you can trust in that position can be so important, but most people don't have that. But it seems like Roe is now starting to offer that via telehealth. So you guys just raised $500 million. Maybe just tell us a little bit about that. Someone offers you $500 million in a three-week period, and you can you know, put that level of capital in the company to really pull our vision to reality much faster. I think it sort of made it an obvious choice where our existing investors wanted to double down even further, and we were able to really get an amazing new investors to support us as well. What I think they recognized, and one of the big um, transitions we've made over the last three or four years, to your original point, is I think what makes Roe unique is that we're really the only... And we can talk about this with, with the vaccine drive, and I'll, I want to hand it over to my co-founder, Saman, because I think this is something that really highlights what we've built over the last three or four years. But Roe is the only healthcare company in the entire country 
to integrate a national telemedicine practice, a national proprietary pharmacy network. We have eight pharmacies distributed throughout the country. We'll have 10 by the end of this year, 15 by the end of next. And we have an in-home care platform. So we acquired the leading in-home care platform, did 100,000 in-home appointments last year, and we can send a healthcare provider into the home of 95% of the U.S. population. So when you take those three things, you take telemedicine, you take pharmacy, you take in-home care, and you seamlessly integrate them, that's actually what allows us to offer high-quality, affordable care across the country. And so Rose infrastructure is really one of one, and that's what's actually enabled us to, to be the first company to launch a first-of-its-kind in-home vaccination program, which I think is really temporally relevant. And, and Saman, and we could talk about this maybe later on about how you, how you end up choosing your co-founders, but Saman really willed this project into existence for us. So maybe Saman, if you want to jam on some of the stuff on the vaccine drive. I think for sure. Yeah, just give us a quick description of like what this is, because I think people are like, wait, you're going to deliver vaccines via Uber? Like, how does that work? Right, right. About the vaccine drive, one of the things that we saw with the vaccine rollout was that we were seeing more and more vaccine sites popping up and, you know, the, the increase in vaccine supply uh, was improving um, and that was going up. But one of the things that we identified was that you have Americans who are either elderly or disabled or homebound who, who are facing problems accessing those vaccine sites. You know, we started, you know, just looking at, at our home state in New York, you have over 2 million people who are over 65 with chronic conditions. And for a lot of those folks, it's either too unsafe impossible or just too difficult to get to vaccination sites. So as Z mentioned, we have built the platform between in-home care capabilities, our telehealth platform, our pharmacy distribution network, where we said, can we leverage every part of our platform in order to launch an in-home vaccination program? So we started getting in touch with the New York State's Department of Health, and we launched something called the COVID vaccine drive. It was really a first of its kind in-home vaccination program that we launched about a month, month and a half ago. And the way it works is we administer COVID vaccines for our you know, most vulnerable people um, right where they are. And we've, we've been able to do it at zero cost to recipients. And as Z mentioned, it's literally leveraged every piece of our infrastructure. And one of the things that was pretty remarkable is we went from talking to the New York States, you know, being on a call, I remember on Sunday, we were chatting with the team at New York State, and they said, how quickly can you get it up? And we managed to get it up in four weeks. And the reason why we were able to launch an in-home vaccination program in four weeks is because we had built for almost four years all of the different pieces that made that happen. So we were, we were really proud, and now we're rolling it out further. We're just doing that, uh, you know, the J&J vaccine. And, you know, we've been vaccinating folks who are over 100 years old, so, you know, people that you would normally probably not get online. It's been really rewarding to see. It sounds like the foundation of Roe is the fact that health insurance just feels super broken. Like you don't know how much you pay until after you get your service, which makes it pretty tough for you to like actually compare prices and quality of care or for there to really be any incentive for these companies, these healthcare providers to do a great job, let alone the insurance providers to do a great job. And so you know, maybe we could just talk a little bit about why health insurance is broken, like the history of how that happened and why you guys are kind of sidestepping it. And this is where I'd love to have you, Z, maybe you could just start us off with like, what is the history of why health insurance is so broken in America? We could talk for 90 minutes about this concept in general. What I think is interesting, just taking a step back and saying, okay, what is it originally intended to do? And when you think about it, insurance is a pretty beautiful financial instrument, but it's intended to pool risk. And things that are best to pool risk are, you know, when an event satisfies all three of the following criteria, right? When something is rare, so it doesn't happen very frequently, it's uncertain. So it may never actually happen at all. And it's expensive. 
And when something is all three of those things, it makes sense for people to pool their resources on the off chance that, that something catastrophic happens to one of them. And so that's really what the concept of insurance is intended to do. And we as a society have really used it to fund certainty. And the reason, and a couple of the reasons, but it really is sort of a vestige of positioning health insurance in the most tax advantageous way, which is in the early 40s, we passed the Income Stabilization Act, where we froze wages, right? We were trying to protect against inflation during World War II. And what ended up happening is that we excluded healthcare benefits from being included in that uh, calculation of, of a frozen wage. And so it actually became an additional form of compensation, and it became the most tax advantageous way to actually receive health insurance. So it made sense at the time. And, and what ended up happening, though, is then it made it commonplace and, and passed into law in the, in the early 50s. And then what ended up happening, though, is it became sort of commonplace for your employer to ultimately purchase your insurance. And so you have this massive principal agent problem, right, where the person purchasing the service was different than the person providing the service, which is different than the person receiving the service. And then you started to see these distorted incentives. And what ended up happening again is that patients or the ultimate stakeholder were not in control of the flow of money. There's this massive debate in healthcare right now, right? Like who pays for healthcare? And at Roe, we don't believe that debate exists. We believe that that debate misses the point entirely because in our minds, a patient pays for healthcare. They do it through their taxes. It's 25% of our budget. They do it through their suppressed wages. Economists widely agree that the lack of wage growth of the last 20 years can be largely attributed to the increase in employer-based healthcare costs. And they do it through their post-tax dollars, right? And these post-tax dollars have been cleverly and cruelly been rebranded as, as quote-unquote out-of-pocket, but it all comes out of a patient's pocket. The real question is, when does it come out of a patient's pocket? And what Roe is trying to create is we are trying to create a world in which when it comes out, of the patient's pocket is what matters most. And we want to create a world where when is at the point of care such that people in the healthcare ecosystem have to fight for the right to take care of patients because who controls that flow of money at the point of care gets to determine what good is and gets to determine what high quality care is. It's not that we don't appreciate the concept of insurance, but we don't participate in the existing system because we think it exacerbates a, a lack of patient centricity. Christina, I'd love to hear your perspective here because I know that you you've covered this area for years, dealing with like all of the mechanizations of the of you know the healthcare industrial complex. You know, why do you think this is so broken, and and what do you see the sort of potential is for new telehealth providers to kind of rewrite the system? Yeah, thanks for asking, Josh, and I I love the answers um, that have already been given. I, I was going to make a lot of the same points. So, um, I mean, I think you know the churn issue is a big one, and this was one that really blew my mind. And just in conversations with the U.S. health plans, I mean, they'll tell you kind of on the commercial side that they typically only get you for two to four years. So just think about kind of what is, what are they incentivized to cover there? And that's why uh, VCs love the kind of Medicare Advantage market so much because the churn there is so high, but it's it's slightly less um, than what you might see. So there's just a little bit more incentive to kind of cover things on the prevention side. Um, and that's why people talk about you know, the U.S. healthcare system as being kind of more about sick care than about health or, or wellness or any of these things. Um, I think we've just ended up with this system, and you can really barely even call it one, where we have this crazy cost and almost no player in the space is really incentivized to bring that cost down. And we're bankrupting people on a regular basis, and at the same time, we're just not producing better outcomes. 
And so I think, you know, we actually have a lot to learn from other countries. As soon as you start talking about terms like universal healthcare, it gets sort of looped in with this idea of single payer, which is a path to universal healthcare, but not the only one. And there are lots of countries that do it in an even more decentralized way than, than the US. So I think there's just tons of different approaches that, that we could try that would work better than the one that we have, which, as Z talked about, is this kind of random accident that happened in the in the post-war period. Chris, I know you've been watching this space for years, you know, as an investor back at General Catalyst before you founded Signalfire. You know, what's your sort of take here on why this is still broken? Like, why haven't we seen startups be able to fix the insurance problem directly? And then why did you decide that like that Roe was going to be such a better approach of just saying, rather than try to fix the insurance industry, just sidestep it and offer patients the power to choose how they want to pay for care? Yeah, it's something that's been in my family for a very long time, long before I was an investor. My brother is actually a PhD in healthcare economics and policy, in addition to being an MD echocardiologist. He actually runs, he's a chief strategy officer for Medicare and Medicaid at the national policy level. So let's just say it's been a talk around the table with both my sister and brother in the healthcare world for many years. And I agree with everything everyone has said. It's a fundamental misalignment of incentives. And then beyond that, there's also the legal issues of liability and, and other things that we have in this country that sort of drive all sorts of distortion of what are aligned behaviors. I mean, I'll never forget when my daughter was born at Mass General Hospital at the children's clinic there and Blue Cross Blue Shield of New York or whatever it was refused to pay the bill. And we're like, for the birth of our baby and like basic care afterwards, are you kidding? Well, we don't cover clinics. And we called the billing customer support people at MGH. It was like the sweetest, nicest lady in the world. And then we stayed on the line and she called the Blue Cross Blue Shield people and she turned into this like dragon woman. And there's this, all this theatrics that went on and we finally got her back on the phone with just us and she turned into the sweet old lady again. And we were like, what is going on? And it was all about, she was like, well, they know that we're not a clinic that they don't cover. They know that we're Mass General Hospital, but this is a way for them to delay having to pay the bill and improve their cash flow. And a lot of people don't fight it. And so they just end up paying out of pocket or the bill never gets paid or whatever. And these sort of perverse incentives in all of this is a real issue. And so we just, we, we felt very strongly as a firm, both at General Catalyst and at Signalfire, that there was just a huge opportunity to bring the convenience of the consumerization of almost every other service we have into the healthcare world bring it to you, make it more convenient. It's also very dangerous for a lot of people who are immunocompromised to actually be in a hospital setting. And that a lot of times if you have an emergency of some sort, you end up with this sort of super inflated cost basis for the services that you need when a telemedicine appointment would have avoided some significant percentage of those things. So we just felt that bringing the best of e-commerce and convenience would really move towards preventative care, much more than sort of this reaction sick care as Christina pointed out, and that there was just huge opportunity to sort of transform the industry. So we've done probably a dozen investments of different kinds across the telemedicine spectrum, from everything from companies like Roe to All Health and integrated continuous monitoring, using wearables to color genomics and applying AI machine learning robotics to sort of better, faster testing with a heavy logistics angle, because their feeling is that the hospital system is very strong at acute care in some cases, but terrible at population management. And just the rollout of the vaccine and testing and everything is, is an example of how we're not geared for those types of things. And because it's all reactionary and not enough of it is proactive. 
And so that has to change for us to bring the costs down. And we feel there's just been a massive opportunity that's been accelerated by COVID that was always fear of adopting telemedicine because what of the malpractice or whatever, but COVID threw that out the window because going in for traditional care on site was much more dangerous than telemedicine. And now that that genie's out of the bottle and we haven't had sort of chronic issues, I think it's going to be very hard to sort of slow down the trend towards a much more consumer-friendly and cost-effective healthcare services. Z, maybe you could tell us, like, how are you building that perspective of instead of worrying about like what the insurance insurer wants, thinking about what is actually best for the patient and giving them the power to decide on the, their care? How have you been building that into the various products? Maybe you could just run us through, like, you know, the telehealth visits, uh, $5 meds, ongoing care, your health portal uh, of like, you know, your sort of alternative to WebMD that's actually verified by doctors. Maybe you could just tell us like how you, you th- thought about building that perspective into these different products. There's a bunch here. Just quickly adding on to what Chris just said in, in terms of just like a population health perspective, we've seen across the globe, people sort of refer to the four E's in terms of the order, in order of efficacy, how to actually improve a population's health in aggregate. And they, they start with engineering, where you basically take something that someone's already doing already, where you can reduce the friction as much as possible to improve their health. And this is things like we put iodine and salt, we put vitamin B in bread, we put vitamin D in milk, things that people are already doing. And those are some of the things that have had the largest impact from a population health perspective. The remaining three out of the four E's are enforcement, right? Laws, encouragement. Hey, this is how many calories are on the menu. And then education, like use a condom with education being effective, but, but, the, but the least effective. And I think, um, and then I'll actually, I, I want to hand it to my co-founder, Simon, because he's our chief product officer. And, and Rob can tell you sort of how we think about bringing patients in. And then Simon can talk about sort of how we end up serving and building a good experience for them. But I want to talk just briefly about this concept of engineering, which I think is this really important idea in healthcare, which is if solving healthcare was as easy as building what patients need, Roe wouldn't need to exist. We'd be done already. But I think what is really important and what has been missing from for a really long time is this patient-centric approach, which is building what patients want and what they need. And again, I think it goes back, and I'm going to keep harping on this because it's just, you know, it's, it's my biggest influence. But when your dad is your doctor, they don't just care about your blood pressure. They don't just care about you from a clinical perspective. You know, 100, they don't just want your blood pressure to be 120 over 80. They want you to live a fulfilled life, and they want you to live a happy happy life and a healthy life, right? And so they care about when you're 18, they care about your ability to have sex and the potential for heart disease. And they care about how you feel when you wake up and look in the mirror and potential hypertension. Like they care about both of those and they work with you and use their expertise to help you live a fulfilled life. And I think that is what is so often missing from healthcare where a patient walks in and a doctor just sees a chart. Oftentimes they might not even look in in their face. They might just record what they're saying. And so I think from an aggregate level, what has happened over the last hundred years in healthcare which has probably only happened in healthcare and education, which is you have a massive improvement in technology, right? Such tremendous technological innovation. Second, you have an increase in costs, which is ridiculous. And then the third, you have a decrease in satisfaction. And the last two, an increase in costs and decrease in satisfaction, paired with an increase in in the improvement in technology, that only happens in healthcare, or, or maybe you could add education. And so it mainly, and again, it comes back and we're going to keep emphasizing this, but I think it comes back to a lack of patient empathy and distorted incentives. So I'll hand it off to Rob and Simon who can talk about sort of how we think about bringing patients in and really meeting them at eye level and then delivering on that experience. Yeah. Hi, everyone. First time clubhouser here. Fantastic to be here. And, you know, as you mentioned, we kind of take this approach of jobs to be done where we've got this saying at Row where we meet patients at eye level. So 
we focus on what is most important to them at that point of time and use that to build out a relationship. It sounds very simple, but that was really a big unlock for us, really focusing on something that patients truly cared about. You know, telehealth has been around for 20 years and it's for the most part tried to market to consumers being very broad, you know, care when you need it most or care wherever you are, doctor in your pocket. And I think that has been challenging to resonate with consumers because it becomes a little bit of chicken and egg, right? It's like, hey, consumer, we do everything. What do you need? And people would be like, great. What do you have in your service? And be like, what do you want? And it becomes like, a, uh, I'll download your app next time I have a sinus infection, right? We found that using jobs to be done was saying like, hey, if someone's experiencing cold sores or vaginal dryness, or they want to quit smoking, they probably are thinking about that every morning when they wake up and look in the mirror. And it's something they're anxious about. And so being able to advertise and use more of our marketing power around specific conditions that people are already thinking about is what allows us to bring them in to the ecosystem. And then from there, we can go much deeper, establish a relationship, and we can kind of trick people into being healthy from there. You know, the doctor has their medical records. In, in a lot of states, they can pull the last 10 years of electronic scripts that have been written. With WorkPath, we can now send phlebotomists and nurses to people's homes. We'll have our own lab. It's really kind of just getting a foot in the door to be able to establish that relationship. But for us, it starts with what is most important to people and meeting them at eye level. And I, I would really echo, this is such an important insight that we had, you know, the jobs to be done and really following what that means. It's really to follow the patient journey from the beginning, from the very moment that someone has a health concern all the way down to getting the care. You know, Roe was not the first telemedicine company and Roe was also not the first to build an online pharmacy. But what we found is that we've had in the past healthcare companies go out and say, we will be your doctor for everything you need, anytime you need us on the internet. So download our app. And in case you develop a skin rash in four months, you can use it. And we saw that that pitch just doesn't work. And then we also had companies that said, we will be your online pharmacy for everything. We took a very different approach. Um, we took essentially a vertical approach where we said, we will be your everything for whatever it is that you're going through. And in order to, to reduce the complexity, because at that point we have to build out every part of that stack, we took a condition-specific approach where we said we're going to start with one condition. And then from the very first moment that someone has a concern about that condition, all the way down to getting the diagnosis to the pharmacy, we will build out everything. In the early stages, it was more controversial, that decision, I think, at this point people have seen that the merits of that is that we decided that we're going to own the entire stack. We looked at, uh, and uh, it wasn't SignalFire. So I think SignalFire was always on board, but we've had other investors who told us that this is a really dumb idea for us to build our own EMR system. And it's a really dumb idea to build our own pharmacy and to build our own pharmacy software. Not SignalFire though. Definitely not SignalFire. <laughs> Love us some SignalFire. I remember looking at probably a dozen or so different pharmacy software applications, the same with EMRs. And I think what, what was mentioned about healthcare insurance is so important here because when you look at these systems, the core object of the EMRs in the current market or a pharmacy software is actually not the patient. The core object around everything that it revolves is the payer, it's reimbursement codes, it's insurance. And we felt that it was fundamentally just not centered around the patient, which is why we felt that the only way that we can rethink what that experience is going to look like is by rebuilding essentially everything from scratch. And it just meant that we had to build a lot more, but 
you know, the way we approached it is we said, let's take it, you know, essentially condition by condition. Now we treat over, you know, 25 or so Z states, but we've seen the, the enormous benefits of not writing a single line of code for reimbursement. Everything that we do, everything that our product team does is for the patient. And there's a simplicity in knowing who is the customer. There's one customer, there's one patient, and it just moves the customer and the patient and moves them into one. But we've definitely seen a ton of benefits in, in taking that approach. So with that, I want to talk a little bit more about the history, because I think there's a really emotional story behind Row that really resonated with me when I first learned about you guys and wrote that launch story when I was back at TechCrunch. And just to set the room, you know, we're talking about this $500 million raise at a $5 billion valuation for telehealth service Row and all of the cool things that they're doing, $5 meds, uh, as well as you know, telehealth visits via for, for doctors. And now they're partnering with Uber to provide vaccines delivered directly to people's homes for COVID, which is incredible for all those people out there who are a bit more immobile. Uh, and if you guys want to ask questions, we're going to take a few questions from the audience in a few. Uh, and you can go to constine.club slash chat slash questions, or it's pinned at the top of my Twitter profile. Uh, and you can submit questions there. And we would love to have you uh, to, to bring us or join us up on stage. But Z, to, to rewind a little bit, maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about your own condition, like how your health, your heart condition ended up inspiring the beginnings of Roe. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, when we started very lucky in the sense that my dad saved every single member of my immediate family's life. So I was very lucky in the sense I played sports my whole life and started having some chest pain when I was about 14, 15 years old. And um, I remember bringing that up to my dad, obviously, doctor in the house. And I got a heart monitor that for anyone who watched Saved by the Bell, the heart monitor was basically the size of like Zach Morris's cell phone. It was huge. And it was, um, I'd have to keep it in my pocket. And then when I felt chest pain, I'd bring it up onto my chest and I was never really able to catch anything. And then when I was 18 years old, I started to experience some heart symptoms again. And my dad brought me into his friend who's a cardiologist and I took a stress test. And for those who have never taken a stress test before, you basically walk on a treadmill, it gets deeper and faster, and you see how your heart does. You put it under some stress. And I remember starting that stress test off so cocky. I'm looking at the doctor, I'm smiling, I'm looking at my dad, I'm making jokes, the treadmill's getting steeper and faster, and I'm having some fun, start to sweat a little bit. You know, 10, 11 minutes in, just as you're, I'm going from a walk to a jog, my heart peaks 230, 240, and then zero. And I fell, zipped off the treadmill, and my dad and the doctor like brought me back to life. In, in the doctor's office. Whoa. I didn't know that part of the story. That's horrifying. Absolutely nuts. It was absolutely nuts because that could have happened, right? Like I very easily could have, that could have happened playing basketball or soccer or whatever it is. And it just so happened that that happened in a doctor's office. And I had a heart procedure a few days later and coming out of it, uh, one of the medications that the, the doctor prescribed for, for my heart is a medication called Indoral. It's a beta blocker and it caused a erectile dysfunction. And that is not ideal for an 18 year old in college. Now, again, luckily, I went to my dad. He helped me navigate it and solve it. And so navigated that through college. And then about four and a half, five years ago, I started to experience some heart symptoms again. And I was going into the hospital. I was doing the stress test, the halter monitor. This time, it was about the size of a quarter and just stuck on my chest. Again, uh, incredible innovations in, in technology. So I was going in the hospital. And, and this is actually at the same time that Rob and Saman we're having their second and fourth children, respectively. For that's still a lot of children, Simon. A lot of that's lot me of with the four kids. I got the four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They'll be joining the clubhouse exactly. shortly. Very shortly. So we're all experiencing the, the healthcare system from different ways, right? Rob and Simon, as as partners, 
me is is being lost again, even you know, with my with my dad this time. And we were at a venture studio, and this is a whole nother story which we can go into. But I actually met Saman because he hired me. Um, didn't pay me nearly enough. <laughs> to be so fair, I expected you to negotiate on the initial offer. But, yeah. <laughs> so, so Saman paid me like just you know about a thousand dollars a month, but and I was working for him full time. But I just, I honestly, truth be told, I was going to say yes to anything because I, I really just wanted to work for him. And that's really how, how we met. We were at a venture studio. We were on floors three and five. And, and Rob was at BarkBox at the time, actually, on, on floors two, four, and six. But in this venture studio, I had to run some of the performance marketing side. And that is not my area of expertise. So I'd really just run upstairs, find Rob. And Rob was working. Like he was a VP at, at Bark. He was leading all performance marketing. And I would just show up at his desk and be like, hey, how's it going? I would be like, be like sir, are how you? did you get on this floor? Sometimes and, try and sick the dogs on him. <laughs> and I just kept asking Rob, like, what would you do here? What would you do here? And whatever he said, I did. And then I went downstairs and did it and it worked. So we ended up all sort of working together at this venture studio in, in different ways. We knew we wanted to start a company together. And then going through those different healthcare challenges, we knew we wanted to start a healthcare company and in many ways, again, sort of, I think I only realized this in retrospect, for each of us, we have our own motivations, but it really comes down to the core for all of us to put the patient back in the center and in control of their health. For me, it's to give everyone my dad, right? We didn't really know where to start. And I was re-prescribed that same medication. And for a brief moment, when that doctor prescribed me that medication, I actually blurred out what they were saying about my heart. And at first, I was super embarrassed. You know, my heart procedure is one of the most impactful things in my entire life. I have yet to miss a week of exercise since my heart procedure very intentionally. It's, it's almost neuroses at this point to keep this nine-year, 10-year streak going at this point. And so it's one of the most impactful things in my life. But at that moment, I have a fiance now. We've been together seven years. It was about three years into our relationship. And that's all I thought about. I thought about, you know, how would it affect our relationship? How would she respond? How would I be able to bring this up? Even though I know, obviously, my heart was, was more important on an intellectual level, I knew what I was reacting to on an emotional level. And my dad helped me navigate both simultaneously. And I think that's what we realized is that patients have concerns that will impact their overall health, they'll impact their long-term health. But if you don't meet them where they are, if you don't help them, they, they have a specific path that they're on. They have a destination, they have a point in mind. And you know, the analogy we use is they're driving a car on their, on their like road of life. And any healthcare challenge is really just, it's a speed bump. Sometimes it's a, a larger one, sometimes it's a car crash. Really what you're trying to do is, is let someone and enable someone go live their life, right? The point of healthcare is to become irrelevant. The point of a doctor is to become irrelevant. And all they can really do is, is kind of hit the pause button. And there's a certain nobility to that, I think. But that's really where we started is I had this personal experience. Rob Simon had their own as well. We were drawn to each other because of our shared experience, but our shared value system, our shared work ethic. And frankly, I think our admiration for each one of each other's unique skill sets. I am amazed every single day by the things that Rob and Simon do. And I'm so glad that they are doing them and that I don't have to. But it's more than complimentary skills. It's genuine admiration. And I think that that's what allows us to, to be a great team. And that's what allowed us from the very early days to build so quickly is because we were able to divide and conquer and trust one another that we had the same level of integrity, the same values and the same point on the horizon that we were working towards. So I know that's a little bit more of a story than you bargained for, but that's how we got started. I mean, that's an incredible story to go from like experiencing this life-changing 
health emergency to then feeling the real depth of the effects of the aftermath and how that could affect your personal relationships and then going forward to build something with people you really believe in to solve that problem for everybody. And that, that to me, I think is super important. And yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about you guys started in erectile dysfunction and, and men's health, but you guys have expanded into a lot of other areas more recently, smoking, weight loss, women's health, as well as just a, offering a, a, a huge variety of meds. So, you know, what have you guys become more recently, you know, after you know, going through that evolution? Where we started, Josh, it was interesting. We learned a lot over those first few months. We we had very high hopes going in. And what we found pretty early on was this was a present pain point for patients. And it's really where they wanted to start the relationship. But it was that foot in the door to really bring them into the ecosystem. And the depth we saw of the conversations that they were having with the doctors, the questions they were asking about their overall health was really, was really eye-opening. So it was really about helping them with their present pain point if it started with ED and then expanding from there. One thing we were able to do very early on is just understand what people wanted and what they needed out of the platform. One of the reasons that we launched smoking cessation as our second condition was that we knew a large portion of our members smoked. And that was an active reason why many of those members were experiencing ED. So we're able to see that based on data we're collecting coming in and able to extrapolate from someone's online visit, just the future uh, conditions that we could kind of roll out. We could see the other medications they were taking. We were able to later on expand into Row Pharmacy, which started out by offering $5 ship to your door generic medication because we knew what the patients were already taking and what they wanted from us. And so it allowed us to expand into areas like diabetes and hypertension and heart disease and depression and anxiety, all for $5 a month using the existing infrastructure that Simon talked about before. So the ability to roll out and own our own pharmacies uh, and control kind of this vertically integrated primary care system. And from there, you know, we've really been able to listen to our patients. We saw very early on, we always had aspirations to build and launch into women's health. We saw very early on, even as we launched on Roman, the men's brand, that 30% of patients that were coming in for genital herpes and cultures were women. And they were going through a less than ideal experience on a, a clinic for a men's health brand. So we knew there was deep desire there in an underserved market. And it really led us to think about how we can expand. And as Simon will probably expand a little bit more, because we had built out this infrastructure with the license in 50 states physician practice, with our national pharmacy system, with our custom EMR, we were really able to turn that into the ability to quickly launch into new areas where we were hearing from patients that they wanted us. Yeah, and we'll get to that idea about what happened next with the COVID vaccine drive, because I think that's really awesome. But yeah, I think you know what you're talking about is this destigmatization, that there are a lot of conditions out there that can be really tough for people to go into an office, whether it's weight loss. Uh, you know, We invested in a company called Form Health that's helping with weight loss, and another one called Bicycle Health that helps with opioid dependency issues. And like Those are issues people don't necessarily want to go out in public and be questioned by a doctor or sit in a waiting room to get that kind of care. And the fact that you guys were able to build this, you know, take the the data from the first product, see what people needed next and build that next product. I thought that's one of the most special parts about Row. And I love to ask Wayne and Elaine, like you guys have seen a lot of startups over your years investing at SignalFire. How do you think about that, like sort of accruing data advantage and why that's so important for startups to think about, not just like what do you build, you building adjacent products, but products that literally lead into each other and power each other. Awesome to be here and share this stage with the Row team and everyone else that's at the core in many ways of SignalFire's model. 
as well as sort of a data-driven investment firm. It's been talked about in various ways already around this notion of the condition-specific approach and then kind of going full stack from there. The analogy in the early days when we spoke with the row team that resonated was this notion of sort of the check engine light, that there's something where you, you realize something's going wrong to get in the front door, and then you can sort of address the underlying healthcare condition causing that, whether it's anxiety, depression-related, cardiovascular, smoking-related, et cetera. And as you do so, you're building kind of the virtual patient history of data that you can cross-sell other products and really become kind of responsible for the full life cycle of care. That's in one sense in which the nature of the relationship that, that Z and team are building, I think is a lot deeper than your classic D2C business, right? It's very provider-like and therefore stickier. That's kind of one interpretation of using data. There's another way in which at the scale of data, you can leverage what you learn about the patient experience and customers, et cetera, to, to try to figure out what's the right set of adjacencies and how do you build that portfolio. I just sort of love the notion of taking a very explosive wedge within these very specific conditions as the way to kind of build eventually a much better and patient-centric alternative to the healthcare ecosystem. Yeah. It's something that, um, you know, having seen the inside of Solus Big Healthcare at McKinsey, where, you know, we're doing a lot of business analysis to improve the bottom line of hospitals in ways that, you know, are suboptimal for the overall system and patient outcomes. Basically, advising every hospital to create an ambulatory surgery center because the DRG and CPT reimbursement codes were so lucrative. Or, you know, being at the center of this silent war for spinal fusion surgery patients because those cases were 10 or, you know, 100x more profitable than others, you know, very much the opposite of patient-centric. So that's the way in which we kind of saw the, the early wedge and collecting that data as a way to kind of build the full stack healthcare system alternative, as folks have mentioned. One thing that I think has been so impressive to watch is that, you know, the team at Roe was so early in this new wave of point of care being typically centered at a hospital, a clinic, something like that, now to the point of the home. And there are so many different benefits that come not only to the patient, but also to the provider. And to your point around verticalizing and actually doing the hard work of building your own EMR, building your own pharmacy, and leveraging all the other solutions that are now trying to bring the point of healthcare to the home, whether it's people that are mobily coming and doing the vaccines, pill deliveries, uh, things like that. I've even heard recently of devices that are trying to do full-on blood draws. There are obviously going to be things in the future that probably can't be done at home, like a spinal tap or something incredibly invasive. But for the vast majority, that's where everything is moving. And you guys have been such an early entrant in there. But building up this data set around those patients and everything happening at the home, not only now with your own EMR, but with data integrations to all the existing EMRs because of the data interoperability laws, it just makes so much sense to build up this really robust patient database. So I'm personally incredibly excited to just see how more things come to the home because I mean, that is the true epicenter of patient-centric healthcare. And speaking of bringing care to the home, like, and the idea that you guys start with the emotional pain point, you don't just go straight for the head. You kind of go for the heart first of like what really bothers somebody on a personal level. And that's why I thought, think you guys have had so much success there is because you didn't start with just like attacking the big gnarly problem, but instead just start fixing small things that users really need. And I can't think of like an, a more emotional topic than trying to get vaccines. The appointment system has been so difficult, especially with people for people with lower digital literacy, you know, appointment slots disappear instantly. A lot of people who are eligible have had trouble getting them. And even people who have been eligible for a long time, maybe have a lot of trouble getting to those vaccine sites, waiting in those long lines to get their actual shot. And so what you guys have built here is, is amazing. So Simon, maybe you could just tell us how you guys built this deal with Uber to actually deliver vaccines via to people straight to people's homes via Uber. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. I wanted to make one comment that Elaine and Wayne made around the relationship 
first, which I think is really, really um, important, um, which is that we do start the relationship um, with a very clear, sharp wedge, right? Like we started initially with erectile dysfunction. That was the first condition that we offered. But the important thing is, and, and Wayne mentioned that, that the relationship that we built was not a transactional relationship. We didn't want the patients to feel that this is a place where they can get their medications and then they never have to talk to us. Quite the opposite. We actually wanted it to feel like you're, you're going through a healthcare visit. So the way we, we, we really structured um, the online visit, um, you know, really making the, the, the provider, the physician really front and center, and then also doing some things that we hadn't quite built that gave our patients a glimpse into what we're going to do. As an example, we started with people going through an online visit for ED, but then after they have been taking the treatment, we would ask our patients if they wanted our physician to order a lab test, if they wanted us to do a standard blood panel to, to get to some of the underlying, uh, you know, some of the underlying um, issues and then have a holistic view of the patient. And that immediately shifted the conversation and the relationship away from where can I get treatment for this one specific thing to a broader, how is my health doing overall, right? And I think the, the one lesson I think as a startup that other founders can take as well is that when you're starting with one thing that's very specific, you can still give a glimpse of the future to your customers, right? Like, And we were just giving a glimpse of the future. We hadn't really built out a ton of productization of, of the, the workflow of getting, you know, we didn't have uh, work paths where we would dispatch a phlebotomist to people's homes. So people had to go to their own labs, but we were just giving them a glimpse of the future and that changed the conversation. And what that led us to do is it gave us permission to do more. So it started with, you know, erectile dysfunction. And then over time, we've been treating over 25 or so conditions. And now most recently, people even gave us permission to do vaccinations. For us, it is, again, it just it goes back to what is a present pain point? What is a pain point that's so clear to the patients where we can start the conversation there? And sometimes some people may think that this is, you know, maybe more or less of an issue. Sometimes people start the relationship by talking about their confidence issues around hair loss. And we think that is okay because if this is something that is really worrying to them, and this is something that's concerning to them, then let's start a conversation there. But we never end the conversation at the point of the chief complaint. We always go deeper. And yeah, and on the vaccine drive, it was a similar way of thinking, what is the most pressing needs that this country and the world really has right now? And there's probably nothing that's more pressing than getting the COVID vaccine. And again, we're starting the relationship at a very specific point. And then we allow people to expand the relationship further. In terms of the program, it's been something that over a very couple of weeks we had to put together. But in many ways, it just follows the same philosophy of the jobs to be done, where what is the patient journey that we need to follow? And we do it from the beginning all the way to the end. Adding on that, I think like Simon's being kind of modest here, but what was Fascinating to your point is while the initiative took only six weeks to build, in many ways, it took three and a half years plus six weeks because it did leverage every single ounce of our vertically integrated care platform. It leveraged our telemedicine practice and our nurse hotline. It leveraged our pharmacy operations and, and supply chain right to handle the vaccine. It is not a straightforward vaccine to handle. And it leveraged our, our in-home care platform to make sure that a patient, whether their care provider or the patient themselves, 
scheduled the vaccine, that they'd be able to track the healthcare provider headed to their home exactly like an Uber Eats or DoorDash driver. They arrive, they use the Roll Mobile provider app to walk through the standard protocol that our, that our clinical team developed to make sure that every proper step was taken to schedule the second appointment and to do all of that while making sure that the patient was okay. In addition to that, we had to make sure that no vials went unused, right? So the team put together some pretty incredible machine learning models and, and clustering algorithms to be able to make sure that as soon as that vial was opened, right, we had six hours to administer 10 vaccines. So we scheduled these appointments in advance and we made sure that no doses went unused. And that really leveraged, right? It leveraged our data science team. It leveraged our supply chain. It leveraged our telemedicine. It leveraged our in-home care platform. So the project itself was really a perfect example of everything we had been building towards over the last four years. And how it really got started was, you know, I think there are moments where, you know, as they're happening, that you'll, like, candidly, you'll cherish them for a really long time, if not forever. And I think this is one of those where I don't think I've ever had a moment where I was as proud of, of our team to, to be, frankly, part of Roe and part of the Roe family, where the team and Saman looked at Rob and I or late December, and he said, hey, I think actually because we're capable of this, and I don't know, I think it's a long shot, but he said, because I think we're capable of this, I think we have a responsibility to try. And in complete and radical transparency, Rob and I were sitting here saying, yeah, I mean, we should try, but I think there's like a one in a million chance of, of our getting a, a vaccine yeah. or getting access we, to the vaccine. We have to get access to the vaccine first. If you can pull yeah. that off, sounds great. You can pull Good that luck. off. And Saman and the team really did. They willed it into existence. And our team, and I don't think that this is something that people should do forever, but I would be hard-pressed to find a group of you know 30 or 40 people that worked harder for a six-week period to bring that into existence. And the team just felt an immense responsibility to use the technology we built. People talk about the idea of this, but the initiative and the efforts of the company really did save patients' lives. You know, that's why you get out of bed. That's why you do what we do every single day. It's why you start a startup. You hope to be a healthcare startup for anyone. You hope to have an impact on, on the world and you hope to be able to save people's lives. And this was such a direct way to do that. It was so special to watch the team do it. And I think it is hopefully really only the start of some of the unique things that Roe can do, given the technology we've built. There's so much more to do. There's millions of doses administered every day, and, and we're playing a really small role here. But it's a glimpse of the potential of hopefully the healthcare that we can all dream of and experience 5, 10, 15 years from now. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I really think that the idea of getting this to people who need it most, you know, making it so, I think one of the, the parts of it that I like the most is that rather than most of the appointment systems where you sh you sign up and you try to like scramble to get this appointment, like you're trying to get like tickets to a sold out concert. Uh, and instead you guys just actually queue people in the next available slot. So there's not like competition. You just get put in kind of first come first serve for availability in your area. And then you get the dose like in the time slot that they tell you rather than having to fight it out, which I think especially for people with lower digital literacy is super important. Some of the core tenets of the health tech thesis that we've started to put together at Signal Fire beyond that, you know, putting the patient in control, could the idea of like democratized, destigmatized, affordable access, because so much of access right now is really difficult if you don't know how to even get it, or it's hard for you to go to an office. And the idea of continuous, automatic, like personalized data collection via wearables. To date, it was really difficult for doctors to even keep track of you. They only got to do their measurements when you came in. And so 
so that meant you were getting very few data points. And now we can have constant continuous data monitoring through these wearables. I think is going to be really powerful for catching things early, you know, helping us make proactive diagnoses rather than waiting till things get so bad that you have to go to the hospital. And then I also think the idea of like consumerizing the user experience and you're reducing the reliance on pure willpower. So much of health, especially around fitness specifically and diet has been around. You just need to have the willpower to get off your butt and, you know, eat that salad or, you know, get on the bike. And that's really intense. And it's just not how I think a lot of services we think of today work. And when you make things more, more convenient, as we've seen with, you know, Uber, you know, suddenly you can unlock these huge markets and people can actually just have a lot better service and a lot better life without necessarily having to shift spend from one area that already existed. You can just create new areas by adding this convenience. And then also keeping doctors in the loop, as Chris was saying, the idea that you can't just give this all away to AI or automation. You know, that's never going to be the kind of true standard of care or the way to build trust with patients. Instead, if you actually keep the doctor in the loop and augment them with AI and technology, then you get that consumer trust, you get the scalability, but you also make sure nobody falls through the cracks. And Elaine, I know you've been thinking a lot about this too around the automation part. There's been now some really interesting regulatory changes around data interoperability, pricing transparency, and things like that. I mean, it is shocking, which is one of the reasons why I love that Roe is going outside of the insurance and the payer market. There is so much misalignment in terms of incentives with payers, providers, and patients. And when you start to just follow where the money goes, you can understand exactly how decisions are made, especially at the hospital and health system level. And I think a lot of that is going to be forced to change. And so I think there's some cool opportunities coming off the backs of regulatory change that are things to watch. Yeah, a few other things I'd add. One is um, the continued unbundling of the healthcare ecosystem. At Signalpar, we've been pretty deliberate about constructing an LP base that included potentially valuable partners to healthcare startups like uh, Dignity, now Common Spirit, Kaiser, New York Presbyterian, a bunch of others. And one of the most shocking things is a lot of them have done their own internal assessments of cases really needed some sort of, you know, in-person visit. And it was shockingly low. It was something like 70, 80% of cases can be done remotely. And of course, you know, that's one of the huge trends that Roe is tapping into with initially the wedge of stigmatized cases expanding into primary care. But you're seeing the continued unbundling across, you know, the entire caseload, including very vertical specific cases like autism or opiate addiction that uh, require a very specific set of medical protocols, given how sensitive something like that is. And you're seeing the unbundling of a number of other things that touches in-home care and patient care as well. One is, for example, uh, on the margin, in-home medical supplies. For the longest time, if you were sick and an inpatient and then you had to go home, the nurse would be ordering supplies for you. And it's shocking that handoff between the hospital ecosystem and the care that you get in-home. You know, once you're, you're getting home, whether or not the CPAP or BiPAP machine you have, which you really need, is going to be there at all. And if it's, of course, left in, in consumers' hands, navigating insurance, what's covered, you know, what machines they should buy and so forth is a huge nightmare. So that's another slice that's being carved off the healthcare ecosystem. So I want to bring in a question from the audience. Uh, Dennis Hong asked a great question. He was asking about, you know, how does Roe incentivize its physicians, techs, and service providers in a competitive manner to the larger healthcare system? Like, how do you make sure that they're actually incentivized to provide better and better care? You know, you're not getting a tip if you're a great doctor. You provide a really, you know, personal, vulnerable, emotional, great bedside demeanor telehealth visit. So how do you incentivize those kind of providers, the doctors that you guys work with, but also, you know, the partners that you work with to continue driving towards this idea of like actually giving better care to the patient because they're the ones in control of the payments. I think it's exactly what you just said, which is it comes down to incentives. So the first thing is that no provider on our platform receives any 
monetary benefit for whether or not they prescribe a treatment. Physicians are either compensated on a per consultation basis or what we're actually dramatically shifting to in about 40% of our new patients um, are treated by full-time salaried physicians. So these are physicians who are full-time devoted to the platform. And again, that's sort of where we'd like to head for, for the vast majority. You always want some part-time and slack in the system, again, for a wide variety of reasons, but it all comes down to incentives. And so our providers are incentivized based on the quality of care that they provide on a salaried basis. And you see that across the, the US and other countries that that's actually the environment in which providers are able to really flourish. I wanted to talk about something that, that Elaine just talked about here because it's key, Josh, to being able to actually give providers a really high quality of life, a competitive salary. And really what I think is, is hopefully the world in, in which we're building towards, which is everyone talks about, is technology gonna replace providers? And I think the key at Row that we talk a lot about is we don't want to replace providers. We do want to replace about 90% of what they're doing now, because the only way that we as a society have ever done more with less, and I think when you do the math, there's too many patients and too few, too few providers to provide a sufficient amount of high quality care that we need now. So we fundamentally have to get leverage out of, out of the labor force. We have to get leverage out of one of the most highly trained, most expensive, and least in supply labor forces in the entire country, if not the entire world. And so we as a society, um, the only way we've ever been able to do that, right, from the printing press to the iPhone, to turn luxuries into commodities, to ultimately solve scarcity, is by leveraging technology. And what Elaine said is making sure that you actually have a human doing what only a human is uniquely suited to do and what a computer is basically uniquely suited to do. And I think what that unlocks ultimately is it does allow, and this is an uncomfortable thing for people to digest, it does allow a provider to treat more patients at scale in a higher quality, more standardized way. But what technology ultimately can do is it can unlock and bring back the humanity of healthcare and it can bring back the empathy. What it's been done right now is a lot of times we go into the doctor's office and the doctor might not even look at you. They're typing away on a machine the whole time. Frankly, is what Saman said is really a lot of these healthcare startups, when they get large enough, they ultimately become arbitrage and diagnostic codes. And we have, we have none of that, right? So we really do try to embrace technology to unlock a world in which the patient and provider can connect, bring back the empathy and humanity to the care they provide. This is a piece of technology right here. And this is a very warming and heartwarming experience, right, for us to be able to talk and connect this way. So technology can unlock those types of experiences if it disappears, if it goes into the background. So I think that we think a lot about how technology can empower, but specifically not replace providers to bring back that empathy as far as how they're compensated and incentivized, it all comes back again to making sure that the proper incentives are in place. And ultimately, we love the fact that we go out of business if we don't add value to patients' lives. I think very few healthcare companies can say that. And I think it goes back to where we started, which is it comes down to incentives. When people talk about, yes, it was the early 40s and the Income Stabilization Act and the freezing of wages, and that is what originally linked health insurance to employment. But even in the last 10 years, the ACA, what it did is it, it froze, it fixed a health insurance company's margins. We fix the medical loss ratio. What happens when you fix a company's margins? I mean, every like VCs will know this. Like if you tell a company, hey, you can only have 15% margins, they have two options to make more money. They either sign up more people. And if they have tens of millions of people, it's going to be very difficult for them to sign up more people. Or they increase their prices. So in an insurance company, if a hospital says, hey, instead of charging you $20,000 for this thing, we're going to charge you $50,000 for this thing. An insurance company goes, okay, great. Because 15% on, on 50,000 is a lot more than 15% on 20,000. And then they pass it on to your employer and they just said, hey, your premiums are higher this year. And then your employer tells you, hey, we're not going to increase your wage. And by the way, your deductible is higher. 
So like it goes back to what we said before, which is patients are paying for all of this. It's just when that they're paying for it. And the incentives that people have right now are really, really, they come back to the fact that patients aren't the ones that get to control where the money goes, when and why. And that's the insurance companies, that's PBMs, that's employers. I love rowers. We should not be responsible for choosing their healthcare. So it's a definitely a longer answer than you bargained for. Again, how we incentivize providers, but I think it's all connected with how we incentivize providers, how we use technology, and ultimately how we intentionally do not integrate with the existing insurance system. Amazing. So I want to go over some of the top points from today's talk. And if you guys want these points or the recording from this show, you can go to signalfire.club and you can sign up there or just tap that little signalfire button at the top of the screen and join our club so you can hear about more talks. We've got awesome ones about how to do startup recruiting, bringing together awesome founders to talk about the future of new industries uh, and discussing big news like today's $500 million round at a $5 billion valuation for Roe. But what we talked about was that the reason this all started was because health insurance is broken. The U.S. froze wages during World War II to stop inflation. Employers started to tempt talent with health insurance, but then we capped health insurance margins at 15 to 20%. And now the only way to grow for profits is to raise the costs. And, you know, it's not that capitalism doesn't work in healthcare, as, as Z said, it's that we're incentivizing the wrong stakeholders. And then insurers just don't reduce costs because the employers pay. Like if your customers don't actually pay or have any power, why would providers be incentivized to offer better uh, care? And so I think that's where the idea of Roe comes in and you guys are doing something really different because you're sidestepping the insurance industry. And instead, you know, it's $5 a month for 500 top generic meds, $15 telehealth doctor visits, $20 to $40 for diagnosis, prescriptions, delivery of a bunch of major issues. And then you have a free health guide, which I think is amazing because if you've ever searched for WebMD and it's just told you, I'm sorry, you have cancer when you have like a mild cough, you know how frustrating it can be to have inaccurate, unvetted information. And Roe has this free health guide, just basically a doctor approved kind of version of WebMD. And now I think they're doing one of the coolest things I've ever heard of, which is they're actually delivering COVID vaccines directly to vulnerable and immobile patients in New York via a deal with Uber. And I think that that makes it so much easier and just creating a more consumerized experience for COVID vaccine appointments that instead of scrambling and try to compete for slots, you actually just get slotted in the next available one that's around. And now, yeah, I think you guys are really emblemizing this investment thesis that we have at SignalFire about the future of health tech, that it's about democratized access via telehealth, continue continuous data via wearables, consumerization of the user experience and a reduction of reliance on willpower, human doctors staying in the loop but being augmented with AI, and now this patient-centric billing, this patient revolution that you guys are talking about. Z, you talked about how no one leaves our healthcare system unscathed and your own family, you had almost everybody in your family died at some point and it was the fact that your dad was a doctor that you were able to like keep everyone uh, safe and together and you know that now you're trying to build Roe to provide a similar offering to other you know, to other people to make them feel like they have that dad doctor in their pocket that they can look to when they need that help. And I think that that's so important in a world where it's just getting scarier and scarier and, you know, the conditions uh, are, are out there and there's a lot of the lot that's very stigmatized and you don't necessarily want to go into a doctor's office to, to go to. And I love that you said that I want to devote my life to this patient revolution. And so with that, Z and Simon and Rob, I just want to see if you guys have any final words to our audience uh, about, you know, uh, about the future of health tech the future of healthcare, future of Roe, and you know how you guys are going to sidestep this insurance uh, industry to give a patient revolution. Josh, I, I think you said it so well. I, I almost don't want to spoil it after that, except for to say that if anyone wants to join us on this 
patient revolution, they should go to rowdeco slash careers and, and come join us. Shameless plug. Yeah. And to that effect, if you, if you guys are building something out there in the audience, if you're building something that, you know, emblemizes one of these five tenets that we think of as the future of health tech or, you know, something really especially interesting in telehealth, we would love to hear it about it at SignalFire. We're investing widely across the space, you know, between we've been investors in Row since the Series A. We're also in companies like Form Health for weight loss, Bicycle Health for opioid dependency relief, OrthoFX for teeth alignment, Color Genomics for population health and now COVID testing and all health for continuing continuous monitoring for via wearables. And so, you know, we'd love to hear what you guys are building and you guys can get in touch with us at signalfire.club uh, or you can sign up for the, the podcast of this show as well as our future uh, clubhouse events. We'd love to have you there. But see, we're just so thankful that you've let us be part of this journey with you because, you know, this is something that like as an investor, I wake up every day and I'm excited because we get to back companies like you. And I know that I, you know, I was a journalist for eight years and you always are thinking about the public good and like what you can do on the, you know, you're doing your duty to your readers, but you know, companies like you make up me feel like I didn't go to the dark side. Like a bunch of people claimed when I became an investor that it's, this is the light side if you get to back companies like Row. So I'm just thankful to get to be, to be part of that, man. Uh, that's so kind of you to say, um, really. I mean, the Signifier team, we often say this, they're just, you guys are just not like other investors. I remember from the, from the first time we met, Wayne met us on a holiday or what other VCs considered a holiday took a walk with me, spent two hours. Next day I met seven people on the team. And, and ever since then, I think if I have to think about the number of Signifier team members that have been in a spreadsheet or in a deck after midnight on a Friday or Saturday night throughout Rose journey, I wouldn't be able to count it on both hands. So I think that we've really appreciated the entire Signifier team. And if people are building things in health tech and fit into one of those criteria, obviously can't recommend being part of the, the SF family enough. We're so thankful to, for that testimonial. We really appreciate it. So yeah, if you guys are out there building something cool, join signalfire.club. Uh, you can sign up for more information and get the podcast from this show. If you need help with any of those stigmatized healthcare conditions, if you just have some nagging question and you want to talk to a doctor, or if you know somebody in New York State who really needs to get a COVID vaccine delivered to them, Roe can help. And you guys should go check it out. It's ro.co. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This is super fun. We're going to be doing more of these talks about the future of, of major industries. You know, Signalfire invests beyond in telehealth. We're also big fans of the e-commerce infrastructure space, the creator economy, collaboration tools. So we'd love to hear about what you guys are building in those spaces. But Z, thank you for sharing us your emotional journey, you know, your, the, you know, the tough beginnings and the amazing progress that you guys have made ever since. Thank you. And thank you for having us. And thanks everyone for, for listening. Thanks again, Simon. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, everyone. And thanks to the whole Signal Fire team for joining us. Also, thanks to Chrissy Farr from Omer's for joining us for this talk. And yeah, catch us next time. Hope you get to be part of this patient revolution and we can find a better healthcare future together. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. You can sign up at signalfire.club and you can get a heads up about our newsletter, our startup recruiting guide, a future of industry talks that we're going to be hosting on Clubhouse and big founder talks with some of our awesome advisors from the fund, which include the founders of Instagram, the founder of YouTube, and a bunch of other incredible founders that we're going to hopefully be bringing out here for some talks with you guys soon. But thanks again for joining us. I hope you get to be a beneficiary of all the awesome progress Rose is making. So from Josh Constein and the rest of the Signal Fire team, our deepest thanks for your time. Farewell.